when you extend these data sets back to the beginning of the country, so like your population of banks, your failures, your mergers and acquisitions, your uh, bank creation, all those things, that you, you notice um, some really interesting patterns. And one of the interesting things you notice by going through the data is that there have been, give or take, 17,000 banks that have failed since 1790, which was when George Washington gave his first inaugural address. Okay, they're like, I don't know, like 4,600, 4,800, something like that, the FDIC insured institutions today. Okay, so just based off of those statistics, that gives you, you the instance rate of failure is three to four times that of survival, right? But then you take in, there's a whole other category of, 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 of uh, kind of like what has happened to bank, banks as entities. And that is there's 22,000, there've been 22,000 mergers and acquisitions since the beginning of the United States. Welcome to Wealthy on. I'm Eric Chemi. Recently, we've been having a lot of conversations about what higher interest rates mean for banks and are they stable? And do you want your money in banks? Will they survive? We keep hearing about Silicon Valley Bank in a lot of our recent episodes. So I thought we need to bring in the actual banking expert to talk about this. What's the likelihood of failures? What's the likelihood of the strength of fiat money continuing, fractional leverage reserve, all of that. So we've got John Maxfield here. He's been on Wealthy on before. He's back again. He's the the founder, the editor, whatever you call it, right? Your Maxfield on Bank Substack. I know you're you were the editor in chief at Bank Director, that publication and and overall business there. And I think you're still the senior banking specialist at Motley Fool. In addition to many other things, maybe you're the ultimate bank historian in in the country, right? Is that right, John? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like that doesn't say much for my social life, but, <laughs> but yeah, that's that. I don't. That's what I, I. People have said that. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how you, how you gauge that type of thing, but uh, but I've, I've read a few books about banking. So you read a few books. Some of them are there behind you over there. And one thing that that caught my attention, we were talking before, and you said, and I still don't know if I understood this right or if I can believe it or I misunderstood. You said most banks in America historically have failed. Did I remember that right? Is that true? Because that doesn't, it can't be possibly true. Yeah, no, that's that's true. So if, if you look at just the data, and so, um, I mean, one of the interesting things about banking is that of all the industries that you can study, banking is probably the one with the most comprehensive set of data that, that anybody can access for all institutions, okay? And, um, but that data only goes back to like, really that the comprehensiveness of it only goes back to the early 90s. So what you find is that not a lot of people have extended these data sets all the way back kind of to the beginning of the country. Well, when you extend these data sets back to the beginning of the country, it's so like your population of banks, your failures, your mergers and acquisitions, your uh, bank creation, all those things that you, you notice um, some really interesting patterns. And one of the interesting things you notice by going through the data is that there have been, give or take, 17,000 banks that have failed since 1790, which was when George Washington gave his first inaugural address. Okay, they're like, I don't know, like 4,600, 4,800, something like that, FDIC insured institutions today. Okay, so just based off of those statistics, that gives you, the instance rate of failure is three to four times that of survival, right? But then you take in, there's a whole other category of, 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 of uh, kind of like what has happened to bank banks as entities. And that is there's 22,000, there've been 22,000 mergers and acquisitions since the beginning of the United States. And probably, and this is this is a really rough guesstimate, but probably 5,000, 6,000 of those were mergers in lieu of failure. So like a white knight type of situation. And so you you add those together and so then you're up at like 22,000. So then your, 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 your failure rate is five to six times greater. But then if you extend it out even more and then you say, well, like mergers, acquisitions, like those are entities going extinct. So then you put, you put then you're at forty thousand institutions that have gone extinct, and less than five thousand that are in existence today. So what that means is that there are, you know, the instance rate of extinction is eight times that the instance rate of survival. And so that's this is one of those things where it's like bankers don't like to talk about failure. So I, I just taught a class to about a hundred students at a graduate banking program, and one of the things I asked them, I said like, uh, how many of you have studied failures? In banking, not a single one raised their hands. So these are all senior executives at major banks, and it's interesting because, like, when your instance rate of failure is so great, like you would think that that's that's the first place to start when you study. But, but unfortunately, that's that's not how we've been doing it. So, but are you the only person that realizes the failure rate is so high? Because 
it seems like in this world of call it post-World War II, post-FDR, all the, the welfare state stuff, all the social backstop, we've got FDIC, we've got the Fed, we've got the too big to fail, we make sure banks don't fail. How much of the data is 1700s and 1800s and this just doesn't matter anymore? That That's what I'm curious. And I wonder if that's what the, the bias is of those people that you're talking to, or they think, okay, that used to happen when that was pre-Civil War. Yeah. So I think, I think you're exactly right, Eric. But what they don't realize is they don't know what they're talking about. Okay. And let me give you this very specific example. The very first banks that failed in this country were in 1809. Okay. And they were all based around a situation that was going on in Boston at the time. Okay. So the, a, a guy comes in, it's the best of times in the economy. He decides he wants to build the, the tallest building in Boston. And at the time, Boston was the biggest I don't know if it's, or Philly, I guess, was the biggest city in the country. I think the Boston was the second largest city in the country at the time. And then New York was the third largest because New York didn't grow into what it grew into until the Erie Canal was completed, obviously, right? And so this guy decides he's going to build the tallest building, the first basically modern skyscraper in Boston, but it's at the top of the cycle. So he puts all this money into it, gets control of five different banks in different locations, one up in Maine, one in Detroit, a couple kind of in, in the Massachusetts, kind of the Berkshires area. And he gets control of these banks and then has these banks finance this project. Well, when this project is done, the cycle's already turned. So they can't lease this building up. So the building defaults on these loans to all five of these banks. All five of those banks go under. So that's the very first bank failures in this country in 1809. Now you go back to like the financial crisis. You go back to the 1980s. You go back to any of these crises that we've had. What is one of the core reasons that banks fail? For that same exact reason, people go and they build these commercial buildings at the top of the cycle, the cycle turns, and it goes down. The point I'm trying to make is that you go, if you take the most extreme examples, okay, of the, you take the longest time period, you take the oldest bank failures, and you compare them to the most recent bank failures, it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. So by not studying those, what, that puts you in a situation where you're just going to step on the same rates that everybody else has been stepping on in the past. That that's interesting, right? Because I'm sure people hear it and they think, okay, well, but maybe these are small banks, right? That JP Morgan is not going to fail and Wells Fargo is not going to fail and Bank of America is not going to fail. And all the banks that I've heard of are not going to fail. Is there a bias in okay, you mentioned the 17,000, but are these just tiny little mom and pop, other than you know, you get an SVB in there, but which we'll get into, are these the tiny mom and pop one location type of places? Yeah, a lot of them are, certainly, certainly a lot of them are. But these also include banks like Continental Illinois. Okay, Continental Illinois is the sixth largest bank in the country when it failed. It also includes Washington Mutual. Right. Washington Mutual also coincidentally was the sixth largest bank in the country when it failed. Um, it includes the Bank of the United States, which also was the sixth largest bank in the country when it failed in 1930. So like this includes this includes everybody. L let, me, let me draw a finer point to this. So you go to the 1980s, okay? There are two decades in banking that are like, uh, the best way to think about them is that they're like beehives that have been agitated. There's like these bees flying everywhere. It's like, it's, there's so much going on that you almost can't figure it all out, right? And so the, the 1920s and the 1980s were, were, were kind of um, um, uh, both those time periods. But you go to the 1980s, one of the things you'll find is that literally every single one of the largest money center banks in this country were insolvent. Every single one of them. Okay, and the reason that they were insolvent was because they'd gotten in, they'd been making loans to less developed countries in the 1980s. The, the global trade patterns had all switched in the 1980s or in the 1970s. And so then they're dealing with this in the 1980s. And so they're lending all this money to these, these countries, these oil producers, or these countries that uh, need to be buying oil after the oil crisis in 1973 and 1979 caused the price of oil to go way up. Well, all those countries then eventually defaulted on those, on those loans. And so we have all of our major banks are sitting basically fit, okay? But the regulators aren't going to fail them because if you fail all your major banks in the country, you can imagine what's you're going to have another Great Depression type of situation, right? And so like it, it's it JD Morgan can fail, Citigroup can fail, Wells Fargo can fail, Bank of America can fail. Citigroup was the largest bank going into 2008, and it would have failed but for regulatory forbearance. And in, even in Citigroup's case, you go back in time, like you can find multiple historical precedents for the exact same thing that they were doing. Um, let me give you just one more stat to like kind of draw a finer point to this. Like, so there have been, so what, let's call it 22,000 bank failures since the beginning of this country. There's literally, Eric, only about a dozen reasons that banks fail. 
Okay, so what that means is that for every bank that fails today, there could be as many as a thousand or two thousand banks that have failed for the exact same reason in the past. But we're not using that wisdom that's locked in banking to to, to avoid that in the future. And there there's reasons for that, and we'll talk about that. But uh, but it's it's an important insight for bankers to to appreciate. What are the 12 reasons? And I don't know, you might have some screens you can share us, you can show us, or we can talk through it. But I'm curious if you're saying there's only 12 reasons, you've got very specific, I guess, the post-mortem autopsy on what happened to these banks. Think about what a bank is. Okay, a bank is nothing more than a leveraged, highly leveraged fund. Okay. And it's 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 leveraged, it's it's not just the amount of leverage that banks use, because your typical bank nowadays is leveraged 10x, right? They have $10 of debt for every one dollar of equity. It used to be 20. Sometimes it was 40. We when Lehman went down there, leveraged 40x, right? But so the 10x leverage is a lot of leverage. That means that just on that alone, if the value of your assets decreased by 10%, which happens all the time, right? In these cycles, the value of your assets decreased, you're totally insolvent. But there's an even bigger problem with banking, and that it's not just the quantity of leverage that you're using, it's also the type of leverage that you're using. And so your typical bank doesn't you know, most of their financing comes from um deposits, right? And what are deposits? Deposits are callable funds. They're immediately callable, right? So if there's anything that gets out there about these banks, any bad news, and depositors catch wind of that, I mean, your liquidity drives up. We saw this with Silicon Valley Bank. We saw it with First Republic. We saw it with Silvergate. We saw it with Signature. I mean, your liquidity can dry up a little bit. First Republic lost $70 billion in a day, okay? And so like, so you have to, you have to go into banking to, to appreciating how fragile these institutions are by nature, by design. And we want them to be like that. And that's all that credit, all that leverage is the reason our economy grows the way our economy grows, right? And so, so that's kind of the, the fundamental foundation you need to, to, to appreciate going into this. So now you say, okay, so what are the mistakes that these banks that these banks make? Well, it, it's basically, I mean, you can even reduce it further. It's all about chasing returns imprudently. So you can chase returns imprudently in a variety of different ways. You can do it by cutting your credit standards on your loans. And so commercial real estate tends to be the, if, you know, if you were to look at all the failures in the history of the, of, of the United States, I would, I would guess that uh, commercial real estate is probably responsible for 70% of it, okay? And, and there's different mistakes you can make in commercial real estate. You can go out of your market and you can land in markets that you don't know anything about. So that, that's a big mistake that you can make. Uh, you can do... If you're in CNI lending, one of the mistakes they make is that they're not doing the proper cash flow analysis. Um, you can do things like you can do the same thing in your securities portfolio that you're doing in your loan portfolio. So you can go out and buy securities out of a higher yield but higher risk, and just think that you can skate through it in the cycle. And sometimes you can, but if you get caught, you, you can't. Um, you can take duration risk. You can't like that's what Silicon Valley did. That's what First Republic did. You can do fraud, insider abuse, a huge, huge aspect of bank failures. Uh, and then there can be like natural disasters. There, there were blizzards in Kansas that a bunch of banks failed after. There was a huge hurricane in Florida in 1926 that a bunch of banks failed after. There was like this the earthquake in San Francisco in 1906. Like, so then you have the natural disasters element. And then there's another element that, that it, banks are particularly prone to, and that is interference by the government or changes in the regulatory system that then causes banks to do things that are imprudent. Let me give you an example. In the early 1980s, uh, so in the 1970s, we had an oil crisis. That oil crisis caused the price of oil to shoot way up as a result of a, an, an embargo on uh, exports of oil out of OPEC uh, countries to the United States as a result of our support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War. Um, well, that caused the you know the inflation is shoot up, which caused the Federal Reserve to, to jack up interest rates. When you jack up interest rates, that put thrifts or savings and loans into a situation where they're earning thirty or eight percent on their uh, uh, book of uh, fixed rate mortgages, but they're paying eighteen percent on their deposits to to finance those mortgages, which that should, that doesn't work. So then the the Congress comes in and changes the law, and they say okay. Thrifts I, or savings and loans can go and invest in anything. It's not just mortgages. They can invest in CRE. They can invest in commercial real estate. They can invest in junk bonds, all sorts of stuff. So then these banks that are kind of underwater, they can try to like get back into the game by doing these totally irresponsible things, by investing in things that have higher yields. 
And so that was the response. Another example of this is um, the 1980s, when, when the, the 90s, I mean, it was such a like a, a wasteland for banking. So many banks failed. Um, and and the, the policymakers, the regulators, just like just looking anywhere for solutions to this. And one of the things that they said was like, look, if we let these big thrifts fail, like our the FDIC deposit insurance fund is just gonna be gone like tomorrow. So what's an alternative? Well, let's let them merge together. These these troubled institutions merge together. And then what we'll do is the, the purchasing organization, the purchasing entity, will give them their, you know, they'll have to pay a premium to buy this thing. But that premium is then reflected in goodwill on your balance sheet, which is an intangible asset. So what the regulators did is they said, well, anyone who goes has to save another institution by acquiring them, that goodwill that goes onto your balance sheet as a result of the premium on the purchase price, you can count that as regulatory capital. Okay, that's a that is a that's a big deal in banking. So that's the right what the regulators said. In 1987, the Congress comes out and changes the law. They say, no, you can't use that as regulatory capital. So all these all these thrifts just like immediately collapsed as a result of that change in the law. And then the Supreme Court years later came back and said, the government can't do that. But by then the story was already written. So that kind of covers, those kind of general topics cover kind of the, the, the universe of bank failures. There's a lot, there's a lot to ponder there. Because on one hand, I'm thinking, why would Congress just immediately change law knowing that all these banks would collapse immediately? knowing that we'll, we let them do this so that we could prevent them from collapsing, right? We knew they were going to collapse. So we said, okay, you probably shouldn't count as regulatory capital. So just do it because we're trying to encourage you to buy those other banks so that you can all stay in business. I get that even though we might say that's imprudent, but at least it keeps it going longer. Why would they come in and just say, nah, never mind, you're done? I, I think that I think that you know everybody's playing a slightly different game in this world. Do you know what I mean? Like everybody's playing a slightly different game. And the regulators playing a different game than, than the policymakers in Congress, right? Policymakers in Congress come in, this is late in the decade, right? So we're starting to get, we have started to move through some of these issues. And they probably, you know, there's nothing that, that, that the politicians like more than slamming on bankers in the wake of a financial crisis. Whether, regardless of what policy, what role policymakers would have played in it. Do you know what I mean? And so, like, it's just it's just a popular thing for for politicians to do, and so it was kind of just kind of a part of that. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 curious that that they would do that, but but yeah, that's it's what happened. It's, the cases are called the wind trust cases, and 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 what the Supreme Court basically said is that the government cannot give and then just take away. You know what I mean? You, you got to choose. If you're going to give, then you give. If you're going to take away, then don't give in the first place. Right, right. So I it, it reminds me of everything you're saying. Reminds me of. Silicon Valley Bank is the main one. I know you mentioned the other ones, but that one for some, you know, has the big brand name of the big failure. And a lot of people say, this is what happens when the Fed raises rates, banks can't handle it. But only a couple of banks failed out of thousands that we currently have. So is it, this is the Fed's fault or is this the bank's fault? You know, if you can't handle 5% rates, but thousands of other banks can, whose fault is that? Because the conversation we're having a lot of times is, Oh well, the Fed's not going to be able to keep rates higher because banks will go out of business. But whose fault is it really? So this is how I would answer that question. It's nobody's fault. Okay, <laughs> just like what a cheap way to answer that question. But let me explain. This is the this is a function of how the system works. Okay, like this, the banks that failed this year, well, how they always fail. It, it it's always a system of it's always a product of how the system works. So let me explain. So why did Silicon Valley fail? It's simple, simple. They had, just way too much deposits. They didn't know what to do with them. So they did stupid stuff with them. And, and the stupid stuff they did with them are stuff that like, Eric, if you and I were running that bank, they could easily see us doing that stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the mistake that they made was, was, was an easy mistake to make. But one of the things, one of the things you, you learn when you go back to the history of banking is um, what is the primary constraint that a typical business faces? The typical business, the primary constraint they face is scarcity. Scarcity demand, scarcity supply, scarcity real estate, scarcity labor, right? Scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. It's all about like who is dealing the best with scarcity. That that's your typical business. That's 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 the key. Banking is completely opposite. It's completely opposite. Okay. A lot of people will compare banks to like retail. Like a, a bank is nothing more than like a shoe store, but you, instead of buying and selling shoes, you're just buying and selling money, right? Same exact 
concept. You buy money cheap from depositors, you sell it to your borrowers, right? Same thing with the shoe store. The problem is that when you think about it like that, you, you don't realize that the that the the gravitational forces in the banking industry are diametrically opposed to the gravitational forces in business. Like, uh, here's the best way to think about it. Uh, your typical business is like on the planet Earth, where gravity is pulling you down, it's holding you down. So all of your effort is is on getting up off the ground, right? All of your effort is on that. In banking, it's the exact opposite. You're like on the moon, where gravitational forces are totally different. All of your energy has got to be staying on the ground. And that's why when they talk about banking, like, you know, it's it's one of those things that upsets people about banking, but it's it's an important aspect of it. Like saying no is so much more important in banking than saying yes. And, it, and it's for those reasons because of the gravitational forces are different. So when you look ahead then, what do you foresee in terms of bank failures? Either companies, sectors, parts of the country, sizes, what what are you forecasting now that we've gone through bank failures keep happening, they will continue to happen, but you know, we saw it in the last 12 months and we have these higher interest rates. So what are you looking at? What are you predicting? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so uh, so I'm not in the business of predictions. That's important to, to appreciate. Okay, like I, I don't like I, I don't I, I'm not somebody who believes that you that uh, you can make predictions in a systematic way that is anything beyond just like luck. Okay, um, but you can you can get a sense for kind of what the things are going to happen in the industry. You just don't know when exactly. So let let me talk through how the system works, and then then that'll kind of answer your question. Um, in, in a kind of a, a roundabout way, but but in a more kind of fundamental way. So um, if you go back to the beginning of the time in banking, so this the, the the screen I'm sharing right now, this is a chart of the bank population in the United States going back to the very beginning. And charts like this, I mean, data like, I mean, it takes like, I mean, just like hundreds of hours. I mean, God only knows how I, how long I spent like just aggregating this data going back to the beginning. Do you, and do you so, draw these charts yourself? The font, it looks got it's got that cool artsy informal vibe to it. Yeah, I'm just being a total dork. Yeah, you know, I mean just like I just yeah, I, I do these myself, but like I, I taught myself, yeah. I, the the I did this so at the beginning of 2022, I sat down and I said, uh, I've been studying banking for 14 years at that point. I think like 2022, yeah, about 14 years at that point. And when I first started studying banking, like I I'd gone literally since I was like five years old. I've like spent my life just going subject matter by subject matter, and then intellectually kind of conquering them. And the way that I know that I'm, I've I've gotten to that point is when um, I can reduce the subject matter to a, a, a robust fundamental principle that it, that is robust enough to explain everything that happens. Okay, and that takes a long time to dig down to the essence of something. What's an um, example? What's an example yeah. of one that you did prior to banking? Uh, geopolitics, uh, high-altitude mountaineering, maritime disasters. Um, and then, you know, I've gone like certain aspects, you know, certain areas in history, you know, certain places in history, you know, I've gone through like African history, I've gone through Asian history. I've gone through like all these, you know, history, geopolitics, uh, all sorts of, uh, uh, religion. I spent, I went to law school and once I figured out how law school worked, you don't have to study as much as you, you think you do. And so I spent like an entire semester studying like the existence of God, like like trying to settle that in my head, like physics, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, so when I got to banking, I thought like this isn't going to take me very long because banking isn't complicated. And, right, it's and deposits and loans. Like what else is there? Yeah, it's like what else is there? You know, yeah. I mean, my family we grew up investing in banks and private banks and capitalizing banks. And so I know bankers. So I'm like you know, it's not that complicated. But uh, 14 years later, I thought it'd take six months or a year based on like all the other things I studied and you know, 14 years later, I was like, why haven't I, I've been able to do this. And, and by that point, I knew personally, like all the, most of the top bankers of this country. Wait, so wait. I, so you figured out if God exists or not quicker than you could figure out what's going on with the banks. Yeah. Well, I figured that I didn't know that's where I, but in that situation, I just realized I didn't, I could, there's no way I could like logically, you, you have to make a leap of faith. 
is, you know, was where you get. You, you get to the place where you're just like, well, I would have known common sense would have told me where. Why did I spend six months studying that? You know, but yeah, I realized that like, there's no way that I, just the way my brain processes information, there's no way it would make it like I can make that I can get over that final leap. You and geopolitics I mean? seems much more complex than banking. It is, but it's also when you reduce these things to their essence, they're also quite simple. Geopolitics is all about what control over or access to natural resources. That's it. Yeah, that's what, and that's that's my interpretation of what geopolitics right. reduces to. Uh, high altitude mountaineering. What is high altitude? The, the the death rate, the the mortality rate in high altitude mountaineering is, is is quite high because you're in it. You're in a situation where like life is eroding every minute you're up there, right? And so, like, what is the thing that allows the folks to survive versus the ones not to survive? It, it's it's being cognizant of and responding to your instincts, kind of your instinctual feelings. Like, if you think it's too late in the day to start, then don't start. Do you know what I mean? And so I did that with banking, and I couldn't figure it out. And so, like, at the beginning of 2022, I said, I'm going to give myself one year to figure this out. And if I can't figure it out by that point, I'm going to move on to something else. And you're still here. I'm still here. <laughs> and so what I said, I said, I'll give myself 18 hours a day for every single day. I'll, that's what I'll allow myself um, for 365 days. I'll give myself one hour to play pass with my 11-year-old twin boys. And that was the only kind of like break that I gave myself. And I started in 1790 and I read contemporary materials all the way through today. The thought process being that if I do this, I will know I will have more in my head that's accessible at any particular point in time uh, than anyone ever before. And that will allow me to then see the pieces in my head and then move them around in the places where I need to move them to see the see what I was missing. And if I can find what I was missing, then I fix that. Then I'll like I'll be able to do what I need to do, you know, reduce it. And so it took me about three months to find the thing that I was missing. When I found it, I fixed it. And then I was able to reduce banking to kind of distill it to its essence. And so what was that thing? Okay. This is going to sound academic, but it's incredibly, incredibly important. And the real world implications are quite significant. So this thing I'm showing right now is it's just the chart of the population of American banks going back to the beginning. So the number of banks, the total number the, of banks in the country. Yeah. That exist at any, any particular point in time. Exactly. And what and then overlaid on top of this is this thing called periodization. And periodization is when you take a historical subject matter and you break break it down into eras. And you do that, that like again, that sounds academic, but in a, in a subject matter like banking, where the history is like, it's the same thing going all the way back to the beginning. So hundreds of years, tens of thousands of institutions, wars, all these things going on, going on and off the gold standard, all these things going on. The only way to, to distill a subject matter like that is to reduce it down into errors that then like there's, there's the thematic, okay? Well, so the way that the scholars have broken this down in the past was by the presence or absence of a central bank-like authority. That's how I define how they broke it down. The presence or absence of a central bank-like authority, and that's how this it broke down into four different eras. Okay, first era goes from 1791 to 1837, second era 37 to 1863, it's like a train that's you know, it's like the train doesn't even slow down for the station. It certainly right. doesn't stop at the station. It's like it picks up one of those mailbags and just barrels through, right? It just like it just doesn't care that like the, the train of history doesn't care about this thing that they're saying was a big deal, right? Because if this is the most seminal chart in banking, the number of institutions, and if the most seminal chart in banking, if how you break it down doesn't correspond to the data, you got a problem. Okay. Oh, I see. This is not your periodization. This is conventional wisdoms. This period. is the scholar's periodization. Okay. So once I, and I have these data sets for all these other ones. And so I put all these data sets together and I layered the, the, the periodization on top. And that's when I realized oh, the periodization at all. So why does the periodization, right? For, for I'm not an academic, okay? not at all. I'm not a theory guy. I'm just like, I'm like, a, I help really good bankers be really good bankers. And like, and these guys need like more than theory. They need like practical stuff, you know? Well, here's why it matters. So it's like, let's say you have a huge pile of Legos in the middle of your living room. You got you your fifth kid. You know all the Legos. Yeah, I know. I get uh, you step on them and they hurt your feet and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then you want to like, don't pay for your kids' college and stuff like that. I mean, there's yeah. some significant consequences for that, you know, but, um, but it's like, let's say you have a huge pile of Legos in the middle of your living room and they're like 
the pirate pieces and the castle pieces and the Star Wars pieces, and they're all mixed together. And then somebody comes up to you and says, Eric, build me a castle. And you're like, well, I don't know. Like, it's going to take me a long time to sort out castle pieces. As opposed to if the, if the pieces are already sorted appropriately, you're like, yeah, I'll just go build a castle piece. Right there. Yeah, there's a castle pieces right there. You know what I mean? When the problem is that, like, when you have this ink, you have the periodization wrong, you, you have a big pile of Legos that are intermixed, right? So you can't make use of the data because it doesn't make sense, right? It's sorted wrong, right? And so that's why when you talk about, like, when I was like in that class, it's like, I mean, we studied failures, none of them studied failures because it's so arduous to go through and order all this stuff because you everybody's got to do it on their own because the scholar it wasn't done correctly. But but you could say when you look at this, you could say, okay, in that yellow area. It peaks and then it starts to go down when the when the pink comes up and it goes up when the purple comes up. So you could say, you know, okay, maybe the real issue is what happened there in 1930 and then the peak in 1980s. And then you could make a question for, but is bank population even the thing that matters? Is that the thing that we care about? No, it, it, it's one of the things, right? right? Because it's a product of all of these other things. Creation. Bank creation is, is a thing that matters because bank creation creates credit, which creates growth, right? And that's captured, that ultimately reduces to the population, right? Failures, failures impact population. Do you know what I mean? And so right. like, right. you, you want to understand, like if you want to understand a subject matter, you have to understand the shapes of the curves. You, okay. you have to understand the shapes of the curves. And if you don't understand the shapes of the curve, you, you don't understand the thing. Do you know what I mean? And so the question is though, how do you redo the, the, the periodization? So it accounts for these curves. It explains these curves. And okay. here is, here is, this is how I think, and I, my confidence level on this is high. I mean, I've studied this a long time in a serious way. Like, this is how I, I believe the correct periodization looks like. So what you see is, see, and it's that big chunk in the middle. That's the really important one, right? Because right. you've got to explain the up, that up for the dome and the down for the dome. You can't just explain one part of it. These things are cycles. You got to take the whole thing in. You got to capture all the cycles. You know what I mean? So this is this is how this is how I think it needs it should be broken down. And so what is the thing that breaks that causes one error to switch to another error? That's really important because in periodization, it's got to be the same thing. It's going to be the same thing that breaks it down from one error to another error, and then subsequently when one the sec, that next error changes to the error after that, it's got to be the same thing. Okay. So presence or absence of a central bank authority, a like authority, is what the scholars had. What you realize is that what the true thing that explains these curves is what I call novel liquidity flows. Okay, Novel liquidity flows is when, so novel means new, liquidity is basically just money, flows is obviously, it, it's a verb, right? It's, it's flowing. When a ton of money, new liquidity, a novel liquidity comes into the system or leaves the system, that starts a series of events that can last as long as 100 years. Let me give you an example. So you see that big, you see that big, that the big build up there, it kind of looks like the dome of that, that Florence Cathedral, right? right? What caused that? That big bump right there was a product of the birth of disposable income, which happens here in the United States, okay? So in 1884, the average American had $4 on deposit. Okay, so you adjust that for inflation of 27 bucks today. That's not it. Very, that's, that's nothing. It. Right. Four bucks. Yeah. What you had is then you have wars in Europe. You have a change. You have change in the global trade patterns. And the United States goes from basically a century of deficits to basically a century of surpluses. OK. And when you have when you go from a big deficit to a big surplus in a huge economy, just imagine the torrent of money that you're turning around. Right. So all this money floods into the United States. And where does that money go? That goes to because of the American Industrial Revolution. So you have all these workers that are being empowered and they're making all this money. So that money is flowing into consumer banking accounts. So all this money flows into consumer banking accounts. And then all these banks are like, whoa, like we arbitrage money. Like we want to go get control of that. And so that set into the motion, like all these things that happen. And then all you have all these banks sitting on all of this money and they're just paying interest on the money. The question is like, what are they going to do to like, make an economically viable situation for them, what are they going to invest that money? And so that caused them because they have so much stuff, they have so much money to invest, they're just like, do you do stupid stuff with it? It just burns holes in your pocket. And so that's what we saw. That's what we saw here. And so that peaks, it peaks in 1921, and then it just craters. For the 1920s, you have about a thousand bank failures a year. And then of course you hit the Great Depression, and then you go to as many as I, I think 
uh, there are two to 3,000 a year, I think, in 1933, I think was the worst year. Um, and so what's going on there? What's going on there is you have all this money floods in, and it puts the whole system out of equilibrium, okay? Because you have money and you have goods and services. And so the question is, how do you get these things back into equilibrium, right? Well, you can't increase your goods and services because they're fixed for the most part. I mean, you can increase them over time, but it's slow, right? So what's the way you, you get back into equilibrium? You destroy liquidity. You destroy liquidity. That's how you get it back into the system. How do you destroy liquidity? Well, the most effective liquidity destruction event is a bank failure. It just, it just cleans out that liquidity. Another effective liquidity destruction event is a stock market crash. Because you're sucking all that liquidity out of the system. So you're moving it back. You're in chunks, you're moving it back into equilibrium, right? And so you saw, so now let's talk about what happened this year. In March, what happens? Coronavirus. The government comes in, so uh, uh, annualized GDP falls by 30%, which is greater than the Great Depression, at the beginning of the Great right. Depression. Okay? Right. Policymakers come in and say, this is a freaking disaster, as they should have, right? That was the right response. So they just put, they just give everything to it. I mean, the, the response to this crisis compared to the financial crisis of 2008, I mean, it's like magnitudes larger. So you flood all this liquidity into the system. Where does that liquidity go? It goes to banks. But where it's specifically with banks, it goes to banks that are on the cutting edge of the stuff that is most speculative. Because when in this type of market, that's where it goes. Your VC market, all that kind of stuff. And who's doing your VC, your, your, your cryptocurrency? Who's doing cryptocurrency in VC? Silvergate. Uh, Silicon Valley, right? S signature, right? So if all this money flood into these banks in particular, here's an index of deposits for, um, this is Silicon Valley Bank versus the index of deposits for the industry overall. You see how little the industry changed see that in the dark blue on the bottom? See how the deposits in the industry did go up as a result of coronavirus, but nothing like the what Silicon Valley experienced. Right, this is just the last couple of years. That big spike is 2020, yeah. That's right. They were sitting on the end of 2019. They were sitting on $60 billion in deposits. 18 months later, they're $190 billion. It, it suggests, though, that the government gave away too much money for COVID, right? We're seeing with the inflation. It suggests that the response, like I said, magnitude is bigger than the recession, was unnecessarily large, right? Like when this is a chart of it, we don't need to put more money into speculative VC kind of stuff when we were just trying to get you back to work from COVID, right? It seemed like too much money was put back in. Yes, in hindsight, yes. But of course, hindsight bias is, you know, whatever it is, whatever the saying is, right. 2020. I don't, you know, I don't even know if it's 2020, but like, it certainly, it, it gives you, puts you in an advantageous position in terms of like judging a decision made in the past. But when you're making the decision at the time and you're looking at a 30% annualized GDP decline, I mean, it, yeah. Are a few bank failures this year bad? Yeah, I mean, whatever. You know, it, but it's a hell of a lot better than Great Depression. Right. You know what I mean? So like we can we can criticize what they did and certainly they made mistakes and everybody makes mistakes because we're all human and we're all prone to that. But it's it's a hell of a lot better than the mistake we could have made and not done anything. You know what I mean? So so we're looking at these charts and I know you're not making predictions, but what do you foresee then kind of going forward? What does the historical pattern tell you? Because when you go back to that other chart with your periodization, we're seeing the shrinkage of the number of banks over the last couple of years. The one that, that one, that yellow chunk, that's a downward line here in the most recent yellow chunk. Yeah, well, so the, the, what this allows us to do is, it, it just allows us to do a number of things. It, to resort the data, which is a project I'm working on with some uh, business partners, and we're, we're, we have an idea. We're gonna basically make a LexisNexis of banking because you can, the Lexis, you, you've used LexisNexis, right? Well, if you use it in law, it's a, in a really effective way, an efficient way to make really, really accurate decisions. It's a different type of decision-making paradigm that you, that you need to apply, decision by analogy. Well, you, the only way you can tap into decision by analogy is if you have analogies readily at hand. And we didn't have the analogies ready at hand because it was all sorted incorrectly, right? But now that we've sorted it correctly, you can go through all the failures and go through all the success analogs and you can sort the data correctly and then you, you, can, help to address, you can help to address these issues. But what this allows us to do is once you realize, once you focus in on the fact that it is not the presence or absence of a central bank-like authority that causes big changes in the industry, but instead these novel liquidity flows, that allows you to understand where we're at today. You got to repeat that. It's not about the central bank. It's about these other, it's the liquidity flows. I think what you said is so important that it's, it merits repeating. 
Yeah. So, so yeah. So again, the, the, the thing that causes the big, the big waves, there's big waves and the little waves, right? In any sort of industry cycles, right? And the thing that causes the big waves in, in the banking industry are novel liquidity flows. So liquidity coming into the system and it can come in two different ways. It can come in from another system or like a geyser from the Federal Reserve, right? So the Federal Reserve does play a role in that, right? But it's not the only way that that, that, that a novel liquidity surge can come about. But so then, then you say, okay, well, where are we today, right? Where are we today? And this is where, this is where it gets to be where it matters for if you're actually running a bank. What this allows us to do is say, like, oh, that thing that happened in 2020 wasn't just some, like, random thing that's going to, like, go away. This, we're going to live with this for 50 years, probably. I mean, we're going to be, we got to, we're going to, we have to burn, it'll take, it could take 50 years, 60, 70 years. That cycle between 1879 and 1973 was nearly a century. That's how long it takes to burn off that, that it can take to burn off that, burn off liquidity. And so, like, this puts us in a situation where we know we're, back at the top the thing is back and like, fully loaded again and so we know it's going down and so in an industry like banking where the, it's basically a war of attrition and just surviving is winning to a certain extent right because you're just automatically gaining market share if you're surviving and everybody else is going on down right like it 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 focuses your you on acting prudently and not taking risk at the wrong time because we know it's loaded into the system right now now it's about behaving and then just getting through the next shock. You know what I mean? You get through the next shock, they'll drop a few more banks, like you'll get more share. Like that's what banking is all about. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that this is so helpful because you realize like this is where we're at right now. This makes me think about one of the guests we had on recently talking about you got to get your money out of banks. You know, M2 is dropping. People are giving up on fr fractional reserve banking. They're They're going into treasuries. They don't feel it's as safe as it used to be. I see you shaking your head. Yeah, and it's like, you, you hear that stuff all, I mean, you have to understand, like I've read like since 1790 coming through today, I've, I've heard this argument 20 times throughout history made, and it's never comes to fruition. And people are always saying banks are dead. They're always saying banks are dead, right? They're always saying there's going to be some sort of like new system for financial disintermediation. Inter 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 like it just has never come true. You know Morgan. You, you know Morgan House. Um, good buddy. Uh, he wrote uh, this book, his latest book. I'll let me give it a pitch, actually, because Morgan is like one of the he's one of the finest writers in 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 America right now, not just finance. But he wrote this book. His latest book is same as ever. Okay. And what Morgan is, it, it kind of goes to the point that Jeff Bezos makes that, like, it, and Warren Buffett makes the same point. It's everybody's focused on what changes, but like, why not focus on the things that don't change? Right, because there's things that don't change are just as important as the things that change, right? That's kind of the message with bankers. And I talk about this a lot with bankers who are talking about in the context of innovation, because what does everybody say about banking today? Innovator die, innovator die, innovator die, right? Well, what's the purpose of that saying that? The purpose of saying that is to hijack the decision-making process of a banker, to, to, to take it over with fear, right? And to make, have them make irresponsible decisions to invest in your fintech or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Um, but you go back to your history, and you know what you find? I have, I mean, I've gone through thousands of bank failures, Eric, and I haven't found a single one that was the result of a bank because it didn't innovate. <laughs> Not a single one, okay? But I've found a lot of them, a lot of them, of banks that got out ahead of themselves in innovation and failed as a result of that. And so- Innovate and die. Yeah, they innovate and die, exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. In banking, because the margins for error are so slim. When Washington Mutual failed in, in October 2008, the biggest bank failure in the history of the United States, its non-performing loan ratio was 3.5%. That means it got 96.5% on its test, and it didn't get a beat. It failed. That's how slim your margins for error are in this industry, right? And so if you're allowing fear to make the decisions as opposed to rationality, that's where it's going to take you, right? But like, there's all these like beliefs in banking that you go back through time and you realize, oh, this isn't accurate. Let me give you an, another example. After every crisis, what does everybody say? Banks need more capital. Banks, they're giving up on fractional reserve lending. They need more capital, all that kind of stuff, right? Again, you go back through time, like I rarely, rarely does, a, does an insolvent bank fail. Most banks that fail are solvent. 
How does that work? The insolvent bank doesn't fail, or you're you saying the the of the banks that fail, most of them were solvent. That's what you most said. of them were solvent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It has nothing to do with capital. It has nothing to do with capital. I was just reading, like all the books are saying, all the all say you do banks need more capital. Sure. So they're basically saying that if you go from eleven percent capital to twelve percent capital, that somehow that's going to save a bank. That's making bad loans. When you have eight, when you have like that, this big pile, the huge pile of loans, and pile of equity, and you're going to add one percent of equity, you think it doesn't make any difference, right? Doesn't make any difference. So could you go down to one percent then instead of eleven percent? I mean, like, I mean, you go down to one. That wouldn't make that honest. That wouldn't make that big of a difference. If you're doing stupid stuff with your asset in your asset book, you're doing stupid stuff in your asset. Book. You know what I'm saying? Like. Like you just can't do stupid stuff in your asset book. It's not how much capital you, because if you're doing stupid stuff, you, there's no amount of capital in the world that's going to save you. Washington Mutual uh, raised $9 billion, like just a few months before they failed. They were the highest, they were the best capitalized big bank in the country. They had a higher capital ratio than JP Morgan, higher capital ratio than Wells Fargo, higher capital ratio than Bank of America. I, it just, capital has nothing to do with it. I mean, that, that's that's a slight overstatement, but like, that that's if you're gonna think that's where you should think and then back up from there, not think that capital helps and then go that way. You know, you gotta go the other way. So what about people watching that are concerned? Like you said, it could take 60 years for this liquidity to unwind itself, and they don't wanna be a depositor at the next Washington Mutual. They don't wanna be a depositor at the next First Republic or Silicon Valley Bank. Where how do they make these decisions? Where should they put their money? If they say, Okay, I trust banking in general, but I don't know if I trust my bank. Then who cares? That's what federal deposit insurance is for. But only up to that, only up to that limit. That's not that's that's not the case. They they typically the FDIC will 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 insure all deposits of these banks, and that's exactly what they did with Silicon Valley. If you think about how that weekend went down, they lost all that money in that run on Friday. So Goldman Sachs that the offering didn't go right, right? And so then the offering doesn't go right. So that scares the that scares and, and hit folks right in the VC world. So they then run on the bank on Friday. The FDIC comes in and seizes it. What does the FDIC says? We're not going to uh, insure the uninsured deposits. And then what, what does that cause? That causes a cascade of potential runs on all of these other banks. So then on Sunday, that Sunday, what does the what does the FDIC come in and the Fed come in and do? They insure all the deposits. So they stop all that stuff. And so and you see this with each crisis. Like, you, you'll see them doing the same exact thing. If they insure all deposits, then doesn't this go back to what we saw in 08 where everyone hates the bankers because they make millions of dollars, but there's no downside. They get all the upside and we, the taxpayers, cover their downside. So in, in reality, go do stupid stuff. Go take risks. Go do VC. Go do crazy things. Like you said, it's people making bad decisions, but the government is going to backstop you and no one's going to jail anyway. So um, the the thought that bankers should be perfect people, whereas policemen and plumbers and uh, lawn men and lawn people and teachers and and that they can all have flaws, but bankers can't have flaws. That's just that's just not. And bankers are humans. But no one bails out. No one bails out the other guys. Uh, that's not true. I mean, like Chrysler's been bailed out. The, the auto. I mean, the auto industry was just bailed out in the last. I mean, like oh, we bailed out Lockheed Martin in time. I mean, like oh no. Bailouts happen all the time in all in all bunch of different industries. Banking is slightly different because banking is you're dealing with the money supply, and so like that's the government's province, and so you're going to have a lot more involvement in the banking industry. And just because like the leverage that's used, there's more opportunities. There's there's more opportunities for the government to come in and bail out these companies. But this happens. This is industry agnostic. That that type of thing is industry agnostic. But the people who just feel like, hey, I'm I'm a normal employee. I'm a I'm a plumber. I, I'm a small business person. If I screw up, I'm out of business, right? Or if I, you know, I'll, I'll get a car foreclosed, I'll get my house foreclosed, and those kind of things. But these bankers can walk away with millions, and the FDIC will insure all deposits. So if I can put my money in any bank, then I should put my money in the highest yielding bank, right? I should always go to the. I should chase the yield because all my money is safe. So it, it skews the competition and it skews my risk tolerance and my risk assessment of the banks. Yeah, yes. So that's true. They have the moral hazard problem, right? And, that, and that's, that's, just, that's just part of the system. That's just part of the situation. So you have to like, you try to build laws around that to like to kind of control that. 
but let me let me reframe the whole bankers conversation because uh, I think this will be helpful. So American since America since the very beginning has hated big banks. We hated big banks because we hated England, right? And bank we so we hated that model, the Bank of England model, which gave monopoly, right? So we've always hated big banks. And there's a struggle early on between like the Andy Jackson type of faction and, and kind of the Federalist faction, right? About all that stuff. And so um but what's interesting is that like, and you go back to the like, history and like, and you read the media reports of bankers and it's like, oh, they're all like greedy fat cats. They're just like using other people's money to like make money for themselves. But then you start digging in and you say like, let's be responsible about this. Like, let's, let's like, why don't we just be responsible about this? Like, let's just go look at the facts. Why don't we just go do that? It's going to take some time. It take a couple of years to figure out how this works. But like, what do the facts say? Here's what the facts say. The first big banker in this country was a guy by the name of Stephen Gerard. Uh, so Stephen Gerard was a guy up in Philadelphia. He was born in Bordeaux, France. His dad was like a ship captain. And so Stephen Gerard became like, he's he a number sense. He's like one of those brilliant guys. Number. Like those guys who like then go off and like be like traders and they're amazing traders, like a Soros type. You know what I mean? He was that type of, he had that kind of brain. He got stuck uh, on a, in the Caribbean because during the American Revolution, because there's the British for blockade on shipping back and forth, particularly between France and the United States. So he came up to Philadelphia. He becomes the most successful merchant in Philadelphia. In 1790, I mean, he, this guy's rich, okay, like super duper rich. He's like a Warren Buffett of the time, okay? In 1792, there's a yellow fever epidemic in the city of uh, Philadelphia, which at the time was the, the, the capital of the United States. And 40% of the population left. And then of the, 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 anybody who could leave, Martha Washington, George Washington, they left, Hamilton left, all, 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 the, all the big players left and left kind of like kind of just the regular people behind. It got so bad, and there were literally bodies in the street that the mayor called a conference, kind of like among, a meeting among all the residents of the city. He said, we desperately need help, right? Can, will any of you volunteer to help? Only 10 people volunteered. One of them was Stephen Gerard, who by the time was like literally the richest guy in the city, okay? And he goes up, and he goes, and he's going to be in help with the hospital for yellow fever patients that's on the outskirts of the city. But he's not going to administer it. He's going to actually act as a nurse, cleaning up vomit, like, comforting people, like helping them, you know, bathing them. Like this is the, the, the he's acting literally just bathing people. You know what I mean? He goes and he helps them. He survives. He then gets this amazing award from the city of, of Philadelphia. Well, 20 years later, what happens the world of 1812, uh, it breaks, uh, breaks out. And we, in the year before in 1811, we'd gotten rid of the second bank in the United States, which was basically a central bank kind of at the time. And so we didn't have a way to finance the war of 1812. Well, Stephen Gerard, when they didn't renew that charter in 1811, he bought that bank. Okay. And then, so that was the only source of capital in the country that was large enough to finance the war. So they went to Stephen Gerard and Stephen Gerard personally financed the War of 1812. By personally financing the War of 1812, like we're now an independent country because when we lost that, the British were probably would have just taken us back. Right. So then he dies. So again, he becomes the richest man in America in 1811. And he's the richest man in America until 1831 when he dies. When he dies, he gives the entirety of his fortune to found a school for poor orphans in the city of Philadelphia that will educate them from kindergarten through high school, all expenses paid in boarding school. That school is still going today based upon his endowment. Okay, so you have the first big bank in the country. Like he's not acting like some sort of greedy fat cat. He gives everything to help society. Now let's forward, fast forward to like your 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 marquee big banker fat cat, J.P. Morgan himself, J.P. Pomp Morgan. Right, couldn't be a bigger fat cat banker, right? Do you know what Rockefeller said when when, when Morgan died? What did he say? He said uh, something to the effect of, "I'm sure this accent is totally wrong, but like, <laughs> like, whoa, we thought he owned us all. He wasn't even a rich man. He left so much money on the table. Morgan could have been as rich as Vanderbilt. He could have been as rich as Rockefeller. I mean, like, he put the trust together that owned these things, and he left so much money on the table that, like, yeah, he made a good amount of money." But you don't you don't run around seeing Morgans today, like you see Vanderbilt or you see Rock. You know, like right, there's no right. Rockefeller founder. You know what I mean? Like Morgan didn't do that. You go to A. P. G. E. the founder of Bank of America. Okay, so he founds Bank of America in 1904. Why is he found Bank of America? Because the existing banks won't serve the little guy, particularly the immigrants, the Italian immigrants. So he says, "Well, screw this. I'm going to start a bank called Bank of Italy. It's going to serve the little guy." So he starts it. Later, changes the name to Bank of America. By 1949, when he died, it was the biggest bank, not in the country. It was the biggest bank in the world, okay? He built the biggest bank in the world, and he also had built this other huge bank that would later go on to be the seventh largest bank in the country, which was under the Transamerica umbrella at the time, that then became the first interstate. 
Okay. So he built two of the biggest banks in the country. And you know what his estate was worth when he died in 1949? $550,000. That's it. How is that possible? That's it. So that today that's about six and a half million dollars. He didn't care about money. He just cared about what, what, like what he was doing. He, he just loved banking. He loved, he, he loved serving. So like you go and then you go now let's take it all the way to today. The top banker in America of the modern era. There's two of them. A guy named Bob Wilmers at M&T Bank. A guy named Mick Blodnick at Glacier Bank up in uh, Calisville, Montana. Um, Bob died at the end of 2017. Mick retired at the end of 2016. Okay. These guys have created more shareholder value than any other bank in, in the United States in the modern era by a long ways. Okay. Well, what, 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 if you look at like the characteristics of these guys who did this, Mick Blondin grew up so poor that they literally didn't have food in their house a lot of times. His dad worked at the copper smelter. His dad drove a forklift at the copper smelter in Anaconda, Montana for 40 years. <laughs> okay. I mean, they're like, and then Mick goes on to the, happens in his bank business he grows in this amazing thing and he was the lowest paid banker in his peer group not by a little bit but by a lot if you look at in 2011 which is his board has been pushing him like we want to give you a raise we want to give you a raise we want to buy a plane for you let's you don't have to drive around all the time and he said no plane no raise for years and years and years but in 2012 they, the board finally forced him to accept a raise because they needed to hire a new a replacement for him to attract a replacement for him they said well if we're not paying market rates and we're not going to be able, be able to attract a replacement. And that year, Mick made $240,000. The highest paid guy in his peer group made $4.2 million. And, and, and there's no comparison for their performance. Bob Wilmer's the same exact situation. So it's like, what you realize is that the really good bankers are really, really good people. And we have missed, we have kind of like, uh, uh, Put bankers for historical reasons around how we think about banking and who was involved with banking, particularly a long time ago. There's this kind of innate societal bias against them that just is is not supported by the facts. I think because we see right now the the Jamie Dimon guys or the Tim Sloan types, where it's like these guys are billionaires from all the equity that they've got and their 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year that they're getting, you know, the Sandy Wild types. I think that's what mo most people see. Yeah, I mean, like humans like to look at negative things that other people do, right? You don't like to look at like the you don't like to celebrate the things that other people do because that makes you feel like you're inferior. You want to make yourself feel superior, so like you do that by just focusing on the things that they do wrong and ignoring the things that you do wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like bankers are humans, okay? Until we figure out how to fix humans, we're not going to be able to fix banking. And it's just that's just how it is. And in America, in particular, a country that prides itself on economic growth. That this is the cost of economic growth. These are societal choices. These are not bankers' choices. These are societal choices, right? And bankers are just humans trying to operate within that environment, not to make too many mistakes. So, so you think it's fine? So, when you hear people saying, "Get your money out of banks, get out of fiat money, go buy a bunch of crypto, go buy a bunch of gold," do you think that's all crazy talk? Yeah, I mean, because first of all, there's no risk-free place to go. Okay. <laughs> You know, in in an environment where there's inflation. So when you're gonna take it out of the banks, where where, where are you gonna put it? You're gonna put it in crypto. Do you see what happened in crypto? You can put it in real estate. Do you see what happened in real estate? I mean, like every asset fluctuates in, in in value. You know what I mean? It's like there's there's risk everywhere. And and the fact of the matter is, is like, look, every single crisis, the, the conversation we're having right now takes place in the, in the wake of every single crisis. Okay. And what do we know? Again, this is about not things about change. This is about things that stay the same. And so every, after every crisis, and we've probably had, we've had nine major banking crises in the United States history, a couple dozen crises if you, you factor in minor crises. And the fact that this conversation is taking place after every one of those crises, and yet you still have banks that are still doing just fine. Like, you know, if, you know like the smart person is going to put the bet on, 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 on the fact that everything stayed the same as opposed to it's never changed, even though everybody says it's going to change. You know, it just it seems logical. You know, it's rational. Yeah, I like your point about things mostly stay the same, right? Certainly human behavior stays the same. Fear and greed stays the same. Over, you know, the overindulgence on the risk appetite size, like you said, of the that first bank, the 1809 failure. Okay, economy's great. I'm going to build this huge building. And then all of a sudden it, it blows up. There's always this story about whenever someone is trying to build the biggest building somewhere, that's usually the top of the market. That's right. 
That's right. Yeah, you, you go to any city in this country and you look at their buildings. Yeah, they're almost all built top cycle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and most of them have defaulted. That's what afterwards. Yeah. You can go to Dallas. The entire skyline is that situation. It's all built in the 80s. Uh, and like the buildings yeah. stand though, right? Somebody made somebody made some money on it. Yeah, and, and, and buildings are a great way to destroy liquidity. <laughs> I mean, so it's like it kind of works for the system, you know. What I mean, it gets back into equilibrium. So you said you're doing 18 hours a day of reading. So how little are you sleeping when you're doing all your banking work? Well, this I mean, like I've gotten back into a little bit more. I mean, my wife. I mean, like no joke, my wife like damn near divorced me last year. <laughs> Deservedly, you know what I mean. Like I deserved it, but uh, but she didn't. She's an amazing person. Um, uh, but yeah, I I I pulled about two all night all nighters a, a, a week last last year. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure when all that stuff was happening, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and First Republic and all of that, I'm sure that was a great time for you, right? Like the history was writing itself in the moment there. Well, yeah. uh, to, to your point, Eric. I, so like again, I, you you know how I feel about predictions, but I will say this, okay? I had an event in Philadelphia in March. Uh, is the first or second week of March? Uh, of March year. of twenty two. That's just when everything was blowing up. It was March of twenty two. March of twenty three. March. Oh of right, year. we're in twenty three. Right, March of twenty three. Yeah, right, right, right. Going down. Yeah. And I'm explaining it, and this is on Tuesday, and I have like literally like I'm like the top bankers in the audience at this thing. I'm like these are the top bank CEOs in the country, and like. I'm explaining how the system works and I'm explaining how the novel liquidity flows work. And once the liquidity comes into the system, it's locked and loaded to, for these liquidity destruction events. And we know they're going to happen soon. And so I'm explaining this to all these bankers. And they're like, oh my God, like this is this is sound. This is the proper. And then, and then Silicon Valley fails for that exact reason three days later. And so they think like, oh, John predicted. It's like one of those things where like you, you, you hear about predictions that happened in the past, but like you just got lucky. Uh, I didn't predict it, but I explained how the system worked, and the, the expl explanation explained exactly why the, the banks failed. Um, so it was, yeah, it turned out to be it was career changing for me. Oh, to accidentally to accidentally predict it the same week. Well, I didn't I, just to say these words, and then it happened to be in, right. in the same week of the thing that happened. You know what I mean? But like I, you know, I, I hadn't looked at Silicon Valley because I was so busy building out this model. But I couldn't bring myself up to the current day by the time I had that event. So, like, I didn't have time to look because had I had I gone and looked at the, what had happened with their deposits, because um, I, I I know of multiple instances in the past when that exact same thing has happened. And so, like, the CFO of Silicon Valley Bank had read about, <laughs> and it, like, it's it's unfair to think that they can do this because it takes so much time. You have to be a clown like me who doesn't have a real job to be able to do this kind of thing, you know. And so, like, the Silicon and the Silicon Valley Bank guy had this knowledge that was locked in the history of banking because of the improper periodization how do you have access to what had happened in like the 1840s for example um, uh, when uh, in the 1830s when andrew jackson beat up the chart of the second bank of the united states took all the deposits of the united states government and put it into these state banks injected into these state banks instead so all these all these deposits jumped on the top of these heads on these top of these banks heads and what happens to those banks they either all fail or they would have failed both for regulatory forbearance for the exact same reason that, that Silicon Valley failed. So you can go back if the, if the CFO of Silicon Valley had access to a thing or said like, oh my God, like he's just a one page thing of why these banks fail. Like you just read it and you're like, okay, like banks fail when they have a bunch of deposits come in because they do stupid stuff. Now, maybe that would have changed how, how they deployed all that capital. Maybe not, but they wouldn't be flying blind. You know what I mean? They wouldn't be flying blind anymore. So they, it, would, it wouldn't be an unforced error. It would be basically a self-forced error, if you will. On some level, could people say, because of FDIC deposit insurance, it doesn't matter if they fail. So go do whatever you want. That's right. Yeah, and that's the argument. You're here trying to say, like, let's not have failures. Here are the things that do cause them to fail. Let's keep them in business. And somebody might say, it doesn't matter because you're going to get your money back anyway. Um, so you're going to get your money back, but so it, it, here's why it matters because there's a there's a theory in finance called variance strain, okay? And variance strain, you probably know this way better than I do, right? So variance strain, what that tells you is you have two portfolios that earn the same exact average annual return over a period of time, let's say over ten years, same exact average annual return over ten years, 
the one with more volatility will, at the end of the day, despite the fact that they have the same average annual return, the one with more volatility will produce a lower total return. Okay. And so that matters because value creation matters. It also, the, all this stuff also matters because these cycles can be quite detrimental, right? When you catch them on the downside, right? It, it, you know, like people can go broke, it, people commit suicide. I mean, like, there, there, there are the real world implications of these, of these cycles. So, you know, the constant striving in all of finance is to get control over the cycles, right? That's the constant fight in all of finance to understand the cycles, to predict the cycles, to like protect yourself from the cycles, right? Well, if you can, if you understand how the system works and how these novel liquidity flows come in and how you need to behave, you can actually, you'll behave differently and you can kind of moderate the cycle. You know, it's just an incremental moderation of the cycle. And that's, that's all this is about because there's going to be thousands of years of humans after us. There's going to be tens of thousands, millions of years like, of, of, of life before us. Like we're just one little chunk, but we want to incrementally improve it. You know what I mean? And, and so understanding how this stuff works is, is one way to incrementally improve it. Where can people find you? So like the Substack, is there a book? Is there a podcast? Where are all the places that people want to try to learn more and they want to follow John Maxfield directly? Yeah, well, my condolences if you do, because it's a kind of a, it's a kind of <laughs> I mean, like you just, like you can just, they can just Google me. I mean, if you're interested, like if you love banking, okay? and you want to understand it, um, you should read my stuff because it's different than any other stuff out there. I'll come out the industry in a different way, but I, I also, I don't like to self-promote. You know what I mean? I'm a private, I'm a private person. I don't like to come on here to self-promote. That's not what this is about for me. You know what I mean? This is about like, kind of like sharing what I know. Um, but it, 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 what I talked about was of interest, then yeah, I have a Substack. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me up in a lot of places online. So. My thanks to John Maxfield for joining us here really eye-opening on, on how banking works, how it doesn't work sometimes, and what we're looking at past and future on what changes and what doesn't change. So, you know, thank you again for watching. If you like this video, please, you know, like it, subscribe it, share it, all those good things, right? The podcast, the audio version as well, then more people can see it, more people can learn. And of course, if you're hearing all this and you're a little freaked out about your finances, and like, like John said, you don't want to spend your life worrying about it, and you want someone else to do it, you can go to wealthyon.com quick form there, put your email in. We can connect you with some investment advisors that we endorse. It's free. There's no obligation, no commitment. You can just have a conversation if you're trying to put the worry onto somebody else. So you're not the one worried about it yourself. That's wealthyon.com. So thanks again for watching this episode of John Maxfield and I talking about banks. We'll see you next time.